0: I want to do something a little different today and just kind of jump in on this topic. Um, normally, I like to warm you up a little bit about what we're going to talk about, but there's a lot here. This is really heavy uh, stuff today. So if you're here, um, welcome to Heavy Sunday at Area 10. Um, there, there's, a, there's a lot going on in this in this scripture that we're going to look at, and I want to give it a good amount of time so we can really get through it, because this is a really important topic. I want to talk about how God saves us, but... To talk about that, we need to talk about how we're broken. So if you look around in the world, you see brokenness everywhere, right? You read the news, you read... um You read read stuff online in your Twitter feed or whatever. You see brokenness all over the place, systemic brokenness, racism and and healthcare, and poverty and justice and all all these issues out there that that are are happening in the world. You see brokenness out there. You see brokenness in your families, uh, broken relationships between you and your dad or your uncle or a brother or sister or children. You see that kind of brokenness in relationships that you have all over the place. And then if we're honest, you see brokenness in you you see stuff that you're not proud of inside you. All of the problems in the world don't just exist out there, but they exist in here, which is actually why they exist out there, because it's all in us. The Bible calls it sin. There is a brokenness in us. We are messed up, jacked up. We have done wrong. By whatever moral code, whatever standard you hold, there's dark stuff there, and it needs to be Dealt with because it comes out of us and causes problems for ourselves and for other relationships and and kind of wrecks the whole the whole system. So it's an ancient problem and it's a modern problem. Really, it's this: How do we deal with the broken stuff? How how can we how can we fix it? It's not like you know my plumbing's broken; you call the plumber. Or if you own your own house and you're cheap and you don't want to do that, you, you DIY that thing. No, you've got to go into, like, there's stuff broken in me that I don't know how to fix it. There's stuff broken in relationships I don't know that I can fix them. How, how, how do we heal this brokenness? How do we fix this? How does God step in and intervene? How does God save us from this mess? I want to talk about that. And to do that, I want to get back into the story of the exodus uh, Moses. This is a story, this is an account of something that happened 3,500 years ago. So we're looking at about 16, or I'm sorry, 1446 B.C. We'll talk more about the date of that next week. But 1446 B.C., uh, there's, there's this situation going on where the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, and they're building the pyramids, and they're doing all this stuff for the Egyptians and it's hard labor and it's bad and so God raises up Moses to go confront Pharaoh the leader of the Egyptians he confronts him and says you got to let my people go release all these prison release all these slaves and Pharaoh doesn't want to give up his free labor force so he says no I'm not going to do that and so God through Moses God brings these plagues onto Egypt nine of them that we talked about 2 weeks ago plagues of locusts and frogs and mosquitoes, and, and turns the Nile River into blood, and darkness over the land, and all of these things happen over the course of about a year. And then there's one final plague that is the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for Pharaoh. There's one final plague that comes that Pharaoh finally relents and says, fine, you can get out of here. And I want to read that today, and I'm just going to warn you, this is rough stuff, okay? So Exodus chapter 12, Um, I want to read it and talk about how God works through this and what we can learn about God, and I want this to be practical. It's not just, I don't want you to walk out of here like, oh, that was interesting, but I want this to be helpful to you in in your relationship with God and and how you think about how he deals with the world. Um, So Exodus 12, starting with verse 29, we'll we'll just get right into it. The 10th plague, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, "'Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. "'Take your flocks and your herds, as you have also said, and be gone, and bless me also.'" give a little context to that, if you go down further into verse 40, it says this, that the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was, night, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this night is a night of watching kept by the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So God brings the final plague, which is the killing of the firstborn in, in Egypt, and it's, and it's a devastating thing, and Pharaoh is, is floored by it, as, as, you, as you would be, and he says, all right, fine, you can leave, and he releases all the Israelites, and they get up, and they leave that night, and they, and they take off after being enslaved in that country for 430 years, and when we read the Bible, when modern Americans read the Bible, I think we often read it like we're Israel. We're not right, but we read it like we are. We're like, oh man, okay. Like the because Israel's like the rebellion and Egypt is like the empire, right? We're like, oh man, I'm with the rebellion. I'm with they're the good guys. We read it like we're the good guys, but if if you just read it on the surface and you read the story, you go, wait a second. Like that's cool for the slaves that they got released, but all the firstborn kids of the Egyptians died. That's not a great story. It's not. It's certainly not great for them. Like, what about the other guys in the story? This raises sort of all sorts of questions. Like, is this disproportionate to the crime? Like, slaughtering a, a generation of people? Like, is, is, isn't, it seems like overkill. It seems much. It seems horrible. It, it seems dark. And, and we ask those kind of questions like, man, is God even fair or just in the way he's, he's handling this? We ask that kind of question whenever we see a child die too young Whenever we see ISIS come in and, and kill a whole villages of people, we're like, how is God allowing this to happen? Whenever we see natural disasters that wipe out a lot of people, we're like, how is God allowing this to happen? Is God even, in, in, is God even fair? Let me show you how, I, and I've had to square this, this account in my head as well. Let me show you how I think God's justice and his love and grace can be seen in all of this. Um, because we, we, can, uh, we can get really frustrated with this whole thing, right? We can read this and go, this is super dark. And in fact, Richard Dawkins, you may know him. He's a famous, famous atheist. And he wrote a book, uh, The God Delusion, which was popular some years back. And Richard Dawkins is a no, no-holds-barred kind of guy when it comes to talking about religion. Listen to what he says about uh, the God of the Old Testament. He says, it's arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a capriciously malevolent bully. Don't hold back, Richard. Uh, all right. So, and, and when you read about the death of the firstborn in Egypt, there's a sense that Dawkins' critique rings true to you. I, I, I get it. I get what he's saying, and I go, man, uh, maybe Dawkins is right. Maybe God is just really awful and, and over the top. And maybe maybe Dawkins has a good point here. And I, and I can understand that in, in my most cynical moments. Um, but let me show you God's love and justice and grace in, in this story. Go back to Exodus 11. I want to read to you where God warns Pharaoh that this is going to happen. So Moses speaks directly to Pharaoh. Exodus 11, starting with verse 4. Um, verse 4. Says, so Moses said, he's speaking to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is buying the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all, the, and all of these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went, this is Moses, and he went from Pharaoh in hot anger. Moses announces that this is going to happen, giving Pharaoh one more chance to stop it. And it's not like this is a private conversation between Moses and Pharaoh. All of the Egyptians knew what was going down. If you back up one verse there in verse 3, it says this, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And in fact, you look back at chapter 10, verse 7, it says this, uh, Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So everybody knows what's going on here. Everybody is seeing it. It's not just like it's Pharaoh. They're coming to Pharaoh and saying, aren't you seeing this? There's these plagues happening. This bad stuff's happening. Everything this guy says comes true. And then Moses comes in one more time and says, this is going to happen. God will strike down the firstborn all the way down to the cattle. God is going to strike them down if you don't let the people go? And and Moses uh, gets no no good answer from there. In fact, at the end of, uh, look at verse 8 again from when he tells Pharaoh this, And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And it says, And he went away from Pharaoh in hot anger. Why is Moses so angry when he walks away from Pharaoh? Because he doesn't get it. He's not getting it. I mean, look, who wants to be the bearer of bad news? And this is bad news. Who wants to be in that position? Nobody. Nobody likes that job. There's no joy in this. He walks away like, oh, this is really going to happen. This is going to happen to the whole, the whole nation here. And you've got the chance to stop it. And you won't do anything about it. Why won't you change? He, he believes God. He believes that this will happen. And Pharaoh, like so many world leaders, is just full of hubris and he thinks he's a big deal, and he thinks he can handle whatever. And so he sends Moses away, and Moses is just broken by this. So what can we learn? Well, there's a couple ideas. Number one, God is just. God brings about um, justice. How? How is this just? Well, there's a couple ways to think of it. First of all, Moses gives Pharaoh, God gives Pharaoh nine chances to release the prisoners before this happens. Nine times he comes back to him and says, let the people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not having it. How many chances does someone need? 10, 11, 12, 15, 20? I, I don't know. But God keeps coming back to him and saying, here's another chance, here's another chance. And Pharaoh keeps saying, no, I'm not interested. And, and think about who he's confronting. We're talking about a slaveholder and not just a guy with a plantation. We're talking about a guy who's ruling over a nation who, as a group, are enslaving a whole other race of people. That's that's intense. That's a, we're talking, you know, a million people enslaved by the Egyptians. Everybody's in on it. It's not just like it's just Pharaoh and and as a form of population control. You read this in Exodus one. Pharaoh recruits the entire nation to start killing the firstborn of the Israelites. So everyone's complicit in this, everyone's getting in on this. They're they're going out and throwing the firstborn of the Israelites into the Nile River to drown. So this is how dark this guy is and how dark this entire nation has gotten towards the Israelites. This is, we would say in modern language, this is a human rights violation. And God has been watching this. And so God comes along and decides to dole out justice and pay them back really in the same way they had what they had done, how they had killed the Israelite firstborn. God comes and pays them back in the same way. And if, if that's how God is going to dole out justice, I think we have to say, like, man, who are we to say that that was necessarily the wrong way to do it? Our tendency is to apply our current cultural standards of 21st century Americans to all other times in history and say, well, if I was there, I would have done X. But the truth is, you wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have done X if you were there because you're an American and you're in the 21st century and you think a certain way. And if you had lived in that culture, in that context, you would have thought differently. You would have. We're all, we're all formed and shaped by what we've grown up in and grown around. And and in, in the ancient world, um, they would have seen this differently. Um, so we, we have to be very careful any time we judge history through 21st century American eyes. Maybe what we could do in humility of something that's very foreign to us from a different time at a different place, maybe in humility, the best thing we can say is, I think maybe God knows better than me on this. Like, I, I don't think I can judge this Well. Even that's hard to think about. I, I was talking to Tommy about this this week. I was talking to several people in our, in our office, like, okay, how do you, how do you think about this? And, and Tommy said, well, I think the important question, Chris, is how do you feel about it? He said, what if, uh, what if God said, hey, I'm going to kill your son. If he, if he said, hey, Chris, I'm going to kill your son, Colin, because of things Donald Trump's doing. How would that sit with you? And I go to that space and it doesn't sit with me well. It doesn't, it, doesn't seem, it doesn't seem right. But when you look through history and you try to factor in 400 years of slavery with the whole country complicit in it, nine chances to turn around and repent, a warning about the tenth chance, man, I don't, I don't think I can appropriately judge God's actions here. Um, I don't have that kind of divine knowledge. There's a reason Jesus says to us, and this is one of the scriptures that people who don't even know the Bible, this is maybe one of their favorite scriptures to quote, where Jesus says like, Do not judge or you will be judged. And then he says like to take the log out of your own eye before you try to remove the speck out of someone else's eye. The reason he says that is we are terrible judges of other people's behavior. We're not even good judges of our own behavior. We're terrible judges of other people's motives, their ambitions, why they're doing what they're doing. And so we need to be very careful. It's not to say that we never judge because we do, we do. But we judge in humility and say, man, I'm, I'm broken too, I'm messed up, I, I, I'm, I'm flawed as well. And so we, maybe as we approach this account, we can say, man, I need to put some humility into my judgment of this situation. Instead of saying God is a maniac, like Dawkins basically says, maybe we can say God has a better sense of justice and right and wrong than I do. He's given many chances here and there's still no repentance. And that's frustrating, because I bet all of us know people who are given many chances, but they still never repent. And you know how frustrating that is when it's your own family, when it's people that you know and love? How many people are, hey, you have lung cancer, and they're like, oh, that's bad. Let me have some more cigarettes. And you're like, don't you understand what's happening here? Like, this is going to kill you. You're like, no, no, I'll, I'll be fine. How many times does that happen in culture? How many, how many times does someone have to be confronted and say, you're burning your relationship with your kids if you keep doing this? And the person keeps doing that thing. And you're like, ah, can't you see where this is going? This isn't gonna end well. I think we all know people that, you know, that just harden their hearts. I mean, I've seen this in my own heart. It's It's not as if every time someone says to me, Chris, you're broken and you've messed this up. It's not like every time I hear that I'm like, oh, you're totally right, I'm gonna go fix that immediately. Like, it's a process, right? There's areas where my heart starts to harden up, and I, and I need it to be softened, and I need to be challenged, and, and I need people to call out good things that they see to me and, and inspire me to move forward. But I need to deal with my own brokenness. And so where I land on, on this is I, I think God is just, and he sees who we are. And the truth is, his judgment is the one that actually matters. Not my judgment of me, not your judgment of me. God's judgment is the one that really, that really matters. And there's one more detail here, just maybe a side note. When the Israelites leave, some of the Egyptians go with them. Some of the Egyptians are like, yeah, I'm out too. I'm going to go wander with you guys in the wilderness, so let's just, let's just get out of here. Isn't that weird? It said there's no house in Egypt where there wasn't wailing and crying because of the death of the firstborn. And yet, some of those Egyptians who were wailing and crying were like, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm in with this God. Isn't that strange? I don't even know if I can explain it, only to say that that should give us some pause when we think about this entire account and go, okay, maybe there's more going on here. I mean, even the people who just lost their firstborn are sitting there going, yeah, this God has power and I want to be right with him and I want to be with him as, as they leave. So number one, God is just. Number two, God gives everyone an opportunity to find him. There's a long fuse in this. We read it very quickly over a course of a couple chapters, and I talk about it on two Sundays. But these 10 plagues take over a year. God is patient and giving people the chance to turn back to him and come to him. God is... as opposed to what Dawkins thinks, God is not impetuous and is like a short fuse and is just ready to, ready to smite people or whatever. There's a, there's a long fuse on this thing because he desires that we will come to him. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, the apostle Paul says this to Timothy in the New Testament, God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God is reaching out to you. God desires that you would come know him. Yeah, you've blown it. I've blown it. You've done things you, you regret, that you, you know, things you wish you hadn't done, things, things that are, you don't want to talk about in public and things you would not say to hardly anybody. Like, you've done stuff, and God is still patient with you. You're still here, still got an opportunity. There's still a chance. He's still reaching out to you. This is what God does. There's a long fuse on this stuff. I don't know how long your life will last. I don't know how long my life will last. I don't know if any of us are going to even make it through this coming week. But God is patient with you and is l- reaching out to you. The Apostle Paul spoke in, in Athens, and he gives this really great speech in the first century. And he talks about how God is near us. And listen to one of the things he says in is Acts chapter 17. He says, nor is he the speech to, to a very non-Christian crowd, right? A non a very secular sort of crowd. He says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And listen to this. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He says, look, uh, God has set it up. He has A period of time that you're going to live and a place that you're going to live. So it's no accident that you're in Richmond in 2018. It's no accident of the people who are in China or India today or Africa. All of these people have been set in place on purpose at a particular time. And his desire is that no matter where you are, where you come from, his desire is that you will seek him and get to know him because Paul says you're not not far from any one of us. He's actually very close and he's revealing himself so that we can get to know him. So you and I, we're here on purpose, and God is not far from us. It's not an accident that you're here. You may be here because someone invited you to church, and you think, well, I'm here. really why I'm here, someone invited me to church, and so I decided to come, and that's and cool. They'll stop inviting me if I come one time, and that's fine. Um, but I think there's so much more going on than that. I think God is close to you and he's working on you and he's orchestrating circumstances and he's surrounded you with people who are dropping little hints and speaking to you. And God is whispering in your ear even now and saying, look, I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to draw you in. I want to know you. And so if if you've not given your life to To him, if you've not pursued him, if you've not followed God before and you've said, okay, I'm in, um, just you got a connection card when you came in, just check on there that you're interested in being baptized and we'll talk to you about being baptized. We can go down to the James River and uh, and we can baptize you and you can give your life to Christ and you can follow after him because I I believe no matter who you are and where you are and what you've done, I believe God is patient um, and he is pursuing you. And finally, not only God is just, and not only does God give us an opportunity, but I think this, God is gracious. God is gracious. You see, he gives instructions to the Israelites. He says, I'm going to send it the way the plague goes down. He says, I'm going to send this death angel, and he's going to go strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt. But you're, it's not, the death angel's not going to come for you. Here's what you're going to do. On that night, you're going to take the blood of a lamb. So they're going to slaughter a lamb. You're going to take some of the blood. You're going to you're, and you're going to put it on the posts and on the frame of your house. And when that blood is up there on that frame, the death angel will see that and will not come and strike down the firstborn in your house. And so you would go. You would take you would take a brush or something. You'd get blood of a lamb and you'd paint it on your on your door. You'd paint it like this and like this to put on the sides and on the top, right? And effectively, what you're doing is making a a lamb blood cross on your door. And when you put that up there, the death angel would see that and would pass over your house. This is why to this day, the, the, the Jews celebrate Passover. This is what they're celebrating, that the death angel passed over their house. They weren't struck down and they were released from bondage. They were released from their slavery. And this whole thing is a foreshadowing of what Jesus does on the cross some 1,400 plus years later. When Jesus sits down with his disciples, his closest followers, he sits and has a meal with them. And it's called the Passover meal, the night before he dies on the cross. And he takes the bread and juice that was supposed to remind him of the Passover event that we read about today. He takes those things and he says, this is my body, this is my blood. He reinterprets things from that ancient story and says, no, these things are me. I'm the the lamb. And it's by my blood that you're ultimately going to be saved. The way your brokenness gets fixed, the way, you're, the way you are saved, the way you are made right with God is because of my blood. And Jesus goes and he dies on that cross. That's why Christians say, Christians say weird things. Let's just be straight up. We, we say and believe some weird things, and one of the things that Christians say in the church, and we sing songs about it and stuff, is being washed in the blood of the lamb. And if you don't go to church, and you walk into a church, and they're talking about being washed in the blood of the lamb, you're like, this is gross and really weird, and why do people believe this, and why is anybody into it? But this is what it's about. There's, there's a history to it, that there, there's blood applied to the door, and the death angel passed over, and people were saved. And the symbolism of that is powerful. If God is only just, if God just gives justice, then we all get what we deserve. We're all going to get punished for our sins. But if God is only loving, then nobody gets punished for their sins, which sounds cool for you, but don't you want other people to be punished for what they, get, what they do? Like if someone speeds, I want the cop to pull them over, right? So we love justice for other people. What we want for ourselves is a lot of grace, and God, on the cross, in sending his firstborn to die, he satisfies justice and grace. He is just in punishing sin, but he is loving in not making us bear all of that of that pain. This is what Jesus does for us on the cross. And God's gracious nature, his grace, is so powerful. I was talking to uh, Tim Davidson. He's a lawyer here at Area 10. And he's in courtrooms, and he does in those kind of courtrooms where you're putting bad guys away and all that and criminals and all that kind of thing. And he said, and he said to me, man, justice and grace is something I think about. He said, I, I've seen justice and all justice does is ward off bad things. Justice is like, let make the bad guys pay for the things that they did. He said, but even when a family has received justice that the killer was put away or whatever, it doesn't really make them feel better. It doesn't change them. The thing that changes people is grace. And God is just, but God is full of grace. And we see that when his son dies for us on, on the cross. He forgives us, and he takes away our shame. You see, all this broken stuff in us, the ways we've blown it, that stuff uh, sits in us, and we feel ashamed. And shame is a, a huge topic, a huge topic right now in America, I think. Um, depending on what circles you run in, I guess. I read about it a lot. But shame is a huge thing, and it's this thing inside of us that's like, ugh, I know I've messed up. I know I'm a screw-up. I know I'm a mess. And it just is constantly sort of nipping at your heels and, and reminding you of how bad you are. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that at the cross, Jesus takes that too. Like he's addressed that and said, um, you're not terrible. You've been made right, righteous by me. Um, And and so, yeah, do you blow it from time to time? Totally. Um, But that doesn't mean you're a terrible person. Jesus has dealt with that um, on the cross. Because we've all had things we're not proud of, but those things have been taken and we can be set free. We can be set free because of the blood of the Lamb. Lord, uh, it's a heavy, heavy topic today, but I, I, I pray that we're able to dial in a little better to your justice and your grace and know how um, you punish wrong, but how much you love us and desire for us to come to know you. And so God, I thank you for the time that you've appointed and allotted for our lives, that we get to live at this time in this and be in this place. May we not, um, may, may we not miss the moment, the opportunity that we have to know you. Um, work in us and through us in, in, in this space. Uh, thank you, Lord, for this community, for all the things that are going on, things that are coming up here in the next month. Um, there's there's some exciting things happening, and we, we're, we're uh, grateful to be a part of it. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.